Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy, except today, because everyone at home, we have such a special guest. George Stevens Jr. is on our show today. He is an author, a playwright, a director, a producer, the founder of the American Film Institute, and one of the creators of the Kennedy Center Honors. We are so honored to have him, and we're chatting about his life and his new book called My Place in the Sun, out on May 17th. So sit back and enjoy this wonderful interview with the incredible George Stevens Jr. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I'm your host, Sarah Greenfield, and today I have such a special guest, George Stevens Jr., who is a producer, writer, Founder of AFI, creator of the Kennedy Center Honors. He's here with us today. George Stevens Jr., welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, uh, Sarah. It's great to be with you. Uh, so George Stevens Jr. has a book coming out um, in May of 2022 called My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. And he's also the son of famous classic film director George Stevens. Um, so he saw a lot of you know what went down on the sets of the Hollywood Golden Age. Do you want to maybe share a little about your book and what made you want to write it? I've had the blessing of kind of an extraordinary life, at least <clears throat> by my measure, and an interesting one. Um, and in a way, it's a, it's a kind of tale of two cities because I was born at the Hollywood Hospital and grew up in Los Angeles in Toluca Lake um, and started out uh, you know, in my movie career and then had a sudden change um, where I was asked to go to Washington to join the Kennedy administration. And so I have lived this life of <clears throat> Washington and um, Hollywood. And, and I think one thing that has kind of governed my life, an odd thing, just a little story. And I think it was 1951. I went to the Academy Awards with my father uh, and my mother and grandmother, my grandmother, three of my grandparents were actors. Um, and I sat with my father. And when it came around to the best director, Joseph L. Mankiewicz was president of the Directors Guild. And, and he called out the nominees, John Houston for African Queen, William Wyler for The Desperate Hours, Elia Kazan for Streetcar Named Desire, and Vincent Minnelli for An American in Paris, and George Stevens for A Place in the Sun. And no suspense here, Mankiewicz <laughs> called out A Place in the Sun. My father received the Oscar. And driving home, he was driving the car. I was in the front seat, my mother 
and grandmother in the backseat, no stretch limo. Um, and the Oscar was on the seat between us. And I, I, I was 17 or 18 and, I, you know, it was a fairly exciting night. Maybe he thought I was a little too excited, but for some reason he turned to me and he said, you know, he said, we'll have a better idea what kind of a film this is in about 25 years. Wow. And that was, you know, this is before Cinematex. If you wanted to see an old film, there were very few opportunities, no DVDs, no videotape, no streaming. But he had this sense, having grown up in the theater, his parents were actors, of course, and uh, that, that it's the test of time that matters with a work of art or a film. And as it turns out, that idea has been a part of so much of my life, founding the American Film Institute, where our first mission was to preserve the thousands of classic films that were missing. And then later with the Kennedy Center Honors. And so that little moment set me on this path of the test of time. And uh, my book uh, in so many ways deals with that. Well, and it's a wonderful title, My Place in the Sun. Uh, you know, it takes on mm -hmm. that film and connects you with it and makes it your own. I can't help but notice details and themes. And so a theme of your life's work that I was noticing was the instinct of preservation. It's really interesting that you tie all of that in to this one moment at the Academy Awards, which a who's who of directors your dad won. How fantastic is that? Um, okay, I'll ask a real question now. Um, so <laughs> uh, you start off as a production assistant on A Place in the Sun, is that correct? That was kind of your one of your first early jobs? My first job, my summer job, my, the year I graduated from high school, uh -huh. Harvard School in North Hollywood, which is now Harvard Westlake. Um, and my father, I didn't have a job, found a job, and so dad said, um, would you like to work with me? And I said, yes, I had two jobs. One was to break down Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy and list every character, every scene in parts one and two in a notebook, because my father was about to start making A Place in the Sun, the screenplay, um, which is based on Dreiser's An American Tragedy. The other was to read material that came from Paramount, where he had his company, and there'd be scripts and books. And, and for the taste of a 17-year-old, a lot of rather tedious love stories, you know, <laughs> named Vina Del Mar, rings a bell, you know, they, those things stays with you. And, but then one afternoon, there was a small book and I, I, I read it and um, I went over to talk with my father that night and he was in bed reading. And I walked in with this, this book, it was a relatively small book. And uh, I said, Dad, I said, uh, I read this this afternoon. It's, it's really a good story. I think you ought to read it. And uh, my father said, why don't you tell me the story? So I found myself pacing around his bedroom, doing my best to tell him the story of Shane. Oh. And, uh, and then, you know, so that became formative for me. I'm sure my father was a very, I mean, a loving, wonderful father. I was just, and had a wonderful, loving mother, but um, he was not prescriptive. 
You know, he didn't say, that wasn't an old telt giving me bromides about how I should live my life, but he worked by indirection. And I think by giving me these tasks, he was giving me an opportunity to find out if I had any interest or aptitude for his world. And um, as it turned out, I certainly had the interest. Well, and the aptitude. How, how did you decide that producing was the way that you wanted to go in the industry? What made you choose that route as opposed to, well, you're also a writer too, but what made you choose that particular route at first? Well, well the, the route I chose, I went to work for Jack Webb after, after I got out of the Air Force, who did Dragnet. Jack was a wonderful mentor. And at 25, he gave me an opportunity to, re- to direct uh, for his Mark 7 Limited. And so I really started as a director. I worked, I did Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Peter Gunn and shows like that. And uh, then worked with my father on The Diary of Anne Frank, in which I was the associate producer. And when he got behind schedule, um, I went to Amsterdam and directed all of the location scenes for the movie. And so I was going along as I once or twice said to myself somewhat ruefully, um, that I will be devoting my life to becoming the second best film director in my family. Um, <laughs> but uh, then, and while we were working on The Greatest Story Ever Told, his next film, um, Edward R. Murrow, whom you know, the great broadcaster uh, in London during the war and did all the great documentaries and see it now on CBS, President Kennedy asked him to head the United States Information Agency. Uh, the agency that tells America's story abroad. And Ed Murrow came to town uh, to meet with the honchos of the movie industry. And a few of us sent a message and said, it's the new frontier, would you like to meet with some younger people? So we met with Ed Murrow at the Directors Guild on a Friday afternoon. And the next morning, Samuel Goldwyn Jr. called me. And he said, Ed Murrow is staying at my father's house and he wonders if you would come by and spend an hour with him on Sunday afternoon. And I said, well, God, that's, of course. I said, may I ask what it's about? And he said, well, he's looking for somebody to head the motion picture division of USIA. And I said, Sam, you know, I'm totally engaged with my father. I'm like his partner now, and I simply couldn't leave. It just wouldn't work. So just explain to Mr. Murrow that I don't want to waste his time. 20 minutes later, the phone rang and Sam says, uh, Ed says, you won't be wasting his time. And so I met that next afternoon with Edward R. Murrow. And a long story short, I left Hollywood and went to Washington to uh, uh, work for the Kennedy administration making films, which uh, we made 300 documentaries a year. And I will immodestly say, it became referred to as the golden age of USIA films. That, and that led to the American Film Institute. So now you, have, now you know it all. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's really interesting and really fascinating how, I mean, we watched Woman of the Year a few years ago, on, or a few years ago, a few weeks ago on this podcast, right. and how forward thinking that was. I mean, that's, that's really a feminist picture that came out in 1942. And a lot of the themes of your father's work are very progressive in thought and are a lot about showing I don't know, newer ways of thinking, you know, like in Giant, when at the end of the movie, Rock Hudson is standing up for his Mexican grandchildren, right? So it seems like that kind of 
came through with you as well. You wanted to make a difference and you're finding a way to do this literally through documentaries, through the government. And we watched them in high school. Like I was yeah. reading the titles of what, of what you created. I mean, Nine from Little Rock, we watched that at my high school when I went to school and it's such an important film. So you found your own place in the sun in history. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's fantastic. My father was, he was very uh, understanding of the outsider. I mean, even Alice Adams, his first major film with Catherine Hepburn. I mean, Alice Adams was, you know, an outsider and you just go through the films and, you know, they're, I mean, Montgomery Clift in A Place in the Sun and Alan Ladd in Shane, um, James Dean in Giant, Anne Frank. I mean, you know, he had a, an understanding of that and, you know, growing up around him, you know, uh, I was blessed to have some of that influence. You just mentioned Catherine Hepburn. Uh, I'm reading her autobiography right now, and she mentions George Stevens and working with him. And she also mentions, um, I mean, she brings up how much his work was changed because of World War II and filming those documentaries of, you know, the Nazi plan and all of those things, and yeah. how he ends up producing this wonderful work. And she ends it all by saying, I wish he had produced one more comedy. What yeah. do you think of that? Do you ever, I mean, his work is incredible the, throughout, but uh, yeah, towards the end, I mean, Giant and Shane yeah. and A Place in the Sun, The Diary yeah. of Anne Frank. Do you, do you ever, I guess, wish that he had kind of returned to comedy as well? Or what do you think of that quote? After, after World War II, he was supposed to make a film with Ingrid Bergman, a comedy. He took the train to New York to, to meet with her and uh, they'd met before. And um, he said, I'll figure out the story on the, train and and he said that they went out to dinner she was doing a show and they went to 21 for dinner afterwards and they had a drink and and she said well how's our comedy coming and, and he said Ingrid we're, we don't have a comedy and he said it, his heart wasn't in it you know, you know it was not that he'd lost his humor because yeah. there are scenes in Giant they're as funny as his comedies and uh, you know but um, he he wanted to explore different things. Well, and I can imagine seeing what you would see in World War II, specifically having footage of the concentration camps, you know, that, that would alter you forever. You know, he went in on D-Day and all through uh, in a Jeep all across France, uh, liberation of Paris, the uh, Battle of the Bulge. And he said, I, I had a seat on the 50 yard line and I saw men at, at their best and their worst. That's a beautiful quote. It reminds me of your own life. I mean, there are a lot of parallels between your two lives. I'm totally going off my own script, but I could literally talk to you all day. I have so many questions. What what made you want to go into the army? Like what, how did all that work out? You have such a parallel between, you know, these documentaries that are very, um, they mm -hmm. show people at their best and at their worst and how people can change. They show like justice essentially being served. When I was graduating from college, when I was in college, the Korean War was going on. And so I joined the ROTC uh, because the likelihood I would be called and I would rather serve as an officer. Um, and so then I did, I went in as a second lieutenant and uh, I was made a motion picture officer. There was no D-Day. So I was making films uh, in the United States, but it advanced my ideas about directing. Um, and those themes, of, I did, I shared his instinct for, I, I guess the outsider, nine from Little Rock, nine outsiders. 
and uh, it just turned out to be a, a, a very, you know, a appealing way for me to live my life. And I imagine it deeply affected you as well and got you into the mindset and the ability to create documentaries like that. That makes a lot of sense how that you would be a great candidate to work in the U.S. And, 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 and our generation was influenced in 1961 by the magic phrase of John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And then I was given this opportunity to go and serve and work for Edward R. Murrow, one of the great yeah. figures, and John Kennedy, who uh, took an interest in our films, which was, uh, I write about that a good deal in the book. Oh, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> um, so do you have any, I guess, any great experiences or stories that you might want to share about the Kennedy administration? So I was making these documentaries, uh, and it was so exciting. John Kennedy was an inspiration. There were so many young people. I was 29 when I went to work with Murrow, heading this government, the vision of a government agency, and it just felt natural. It really worked. And I gained great respect for civil servants who are often disregarded, but uh, working with wonderful people and bringing in new filmmakers from, from outside. And we had made a film called The Five Cities of June that was about Kennedy's trip to Berlin in 1963 when he made a speech at the big Berlin Wall um, about this, this Cold War, the Soviets. And Five Cities of June um, was very well received. And, and I got a call one day and, uh, uh, and was during a, an Edward R. Murrow staff meeting. My deputy came in and handed me a note and I looked at it and rushed down the stairs one flight to, and went in my office and it was President Kennedy calling and saying, uh, he said, I saw the five cities of June last night. That's such a remarkable documentary. How many countries is it being shown in? What length? You know, John F. Kennedy, curiosity about details and he'd go right to the person who had the information. And then the last call I had from him, I was in Los Angeles and the phone rang early one morning and my assistant said, the president's calling. I gave him the number at your hotel. And so I, I kind of woke up and I was gonna rush to get a glass of water and the phone rang and I was, and then I decided I couldn't have him holding on the line while the, <laughs> uh, anyway, it was the secretary was on the line. And he got on the phone and he said, uh, he said I, just one thing. He said, I think you ought to enter the five cities of June in the Academy Awards. You know, I mean, just that kind of range of interest. Um, and of course, we, we did, it was nominated for the Academy Award. But um, after his assassination, uh, you know, we all wondered what we were to do. And I went to see Ed Murrow the next day, and I had an idea that, that I wanted to propose to him. But before he sat down across from me and, you know, it was how people felt that day. And he handed me a letter. And I took it and it was dated just eight days earlier. And it was addressed to Ed at the Washington Hospital Center. He just got out of the hospital. And it said, dear Ed, um, I know you're gonna be back and we've missed you. He said, I saw the five cities of June last night. I think it's the best government documentary I've ever seen. And, you know, and God, you know, to be holding that, that was in his hands yeah. so few days earlier. Yeah. And I handed it back to Murrow. 
and Murrow said, um, you keep the letter, you made the picture. Wow. Do you still have that letter? I do. Yeah. yeah. It's, in, it's in my book. Oh, um, my God. <laughs> well, so that's another good reason to go buy the know, book but, every but again, you know, the character of Ed Murrow, it, you know, it's just such a blessing to be associated with people like that in one's life. So I do want to get into AFI, the Great. founding of AFI. Um, you'd mentioned, you know, the idea of, you know, back in the day, there wasn't really a lot of film preservation happening and people weren't re-watching things. Mm -mm. Where did the idea come from for you to preserve film and what has surprised you about AFI and what are your feelings about how AFI has become such a presence, um, the American Film Institute and what it's done? One of my jobs at USIA was also to, we were in charge of international film festivals and we would send an official delegate to film festivals. And I being by then a 30 year old bachelor uh, found it uh, desirable to appoint myself to be the delegate to the Cannes Film Festival. Um, and I was confronted one day by a man with tousled hair and a heavy set man whose name was Henri Langlois, who was the founder of the French Cinematheque, a great figure. He was way ahead of everybody in preserving films and knowing how many films were lost or missing. And as the American delegate and knowing that I had a relationship to Hollywood, he sat me down and told me how many American films were missing and nobody was doing anything about it. Well, at that time I was busy working for Murrow, but President Kennedy was speaking about the arts. You know, the, I look forward to an America that won't be afraid of grace and beauty. And uh, he was pushing the idea of an arts endowment to support the arts. By the time the endowment was created in 1965, um, I was quite well established in Washington and I was asked, they knew what to do about ballet and opera. And but what do you do about film? You, you can't give a grant to MGM, you know? So, um, and I proposed an American Film Institute to the National Arts Council and a few fast, not too fast, dissolves, and I was asked to run it, to found it, as it were. And, uh, and film preservation was uh, the rock upon we, which we built the AFI in collaboration with, importantly, the Museum of Modern Art that was a pathfinder, Eastman House in Rochester, and the Library of Congress. But we started this program and and within a few years, we had 40,000 films in the Library of Congress in the AFI collection that the library restored, you know, and did the work. Um, and it's sort of the core of the Library of Congress collection. And then the other part was uh, training filmmakers. Um, and first we gave grants to filmmakers and then uh, we all, then they set up the conservatory in, in Los Angeles. What's your proudest accomplishment with AFI? I think in a general way that we wanted to elevate the place of film in the American consciousness. It's hard to believe, but when I was in Washington in the 60s, there were people who would kind of proudly say, well, well we never go to the movies, you know, and directors' names were not known. It was only the stars in those days or writers, you know, and AFI, I think, elevated that consciousness 
and we instilled this idea of the test of time with the AFI Life Achievement Award that we started in, in um, 1960, what, what year, 1973 uh, with John Ford. Um, but I think the preservation of the films and the creation of the conservatory, uh, I think are the two specific things that I think are most valuable. You've established this this idea of legacy, and you bring it to Washington with the Kennedy Center Honors. Where did that idea come from, and what was it like in the early days? How did you really implement it? The idea came, uh, we were invited to have our offices in the Kennedy Center when it was built, and, so, and, and, and to build the AFI Theater in the Kennedy Center. Uh, so I was part of the Kennedy Center, and... Uh, and I'm so caught with, you know, said that phrase, President Kennedy said, I look forward to an America that won't be afraid of grace and beauty, that will reward achievement in the arts the way we reward achievement in business or statecraft. That's a big idea, but President Kennedy felt that artists should be recognized and honored. And somehow, I guess, doing the AFI Life Achievement Award and being around the Kennedy Center, I went one day to the founder of the Kennedy Center, Roger L. Stevens, no relation, and said, <laughs> you, you ought to have your own own show. You know, we, oh, we did the 10th anniversary of AFI in the Kennedy Center Opera House. And it was after that that I went to Roger and said, you ought to have your own. And uh, I came up with this idea of the Kennedy Center Honors. And then he said, but you've got you've to produce it. And you went, okay, okay. And then you did. Uh, I mean, uh, I read that you're widely credited for bringing style and taste to national television events. How did you change the game in that term? Like what what was the style and taste that you were able to put into these events that weren't there before? I think it goes back to my father again, uh, working with him. uh, And I was with him and Shane in the editing room and Giant in the the Diary of Van Frank in in that, that era or slightly before. The studios used to say, well, you know, the audience out there, they have the kind of intelligence of 12 or 14 year olds, you know, and that was that attitude. And then dad's mantra was respect for the audience, you know, and he trusted the audience. And you see there are moments in his films where he's asking you to do the work and he's not giving it to you in a platter. And, um, and that the audience is thoughtful and wants to be respected. And I, I think that guided me. And we were able to do that with, with the AFI Life Achievement Shows at the beginning, and particularly with the Kennedy Center Honors, where we believe the Kennedy Center was ready for Merce Cunningham or would, could enjoy uh, you know, classical music and opera, and also to, to try and do it with some restraint and taste, um, and in the writing, and and part of that was often to encourage, you know, people who were on the show talking about somebody else, to to, to not to write a script for them, but to draw them out, find out what they wanted to say, and craft their words. You know, if if uh, Cindy Poitier is talking about Harry Belafonte, but we really want to hear, you know, it's what Sydney, not some joke writer's idea. You brought an authenticity to it. It sounds like that's that's part of it. I think so. Yeah. 
and I enjoyed that. I mean, and and you know, there's these wonderful artists. I mean, and just to to know that Yo-Yo Ma is going to enchant the audience and to trust it and trust him. That that was the source of great pleasure to me. Is there a performance you remember just going, wow, that was incredible? Oh, so many, but we did just one I mentioned, Sidney Poitier, that when he was honored, the great Jesse Norman, the fabulous singer, opera star, his mother's favorite song was Amazing Grace. And just Jesse Norman with that beautiful hair and exquisite voice, you know, singing Amazing Grace to Sydney and, and seeing it, it in his eyes, you know, his admiration for her and what it meant to him. I mean, there are a hundred moments like that, some more showy and elaborate. Uh, we just, there are just so many, yeah. You've done so much with your career, with your life. First of all, how did you know you could just do these things? Second of all, how did you get into writing? Like how, how did that become an open avenue for you where you went, yeah, I'm gonna write this play or I'm gonna write this book or make this documentary. How did you just know you could do these things and how did you find your way in writing as well? You, you know, if it's interesting, I just sort of became a writer. You know, I didn't, I didn't say, oh, I'm gonna be a writer. I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a sports writer. That was my career path, but that didn't, I didn't do that. But when you're directing Alfred Hitchcock, you're not writing it, but you're dealing with the word, everything you do. And, and in creating AFI, so much of it was writing to persuade people to do this and to do that and to that. And when I was doing the AFI Life Achievement Award shows, um, I re realized at one point that I was getting writers who were very good Hollywood writers, but they were joke writers. And um, when Fred McMurray comes out and says to Henry Fonda, or if he's going to see it, pay tribute, yeah, Henry, you look great. I sure'd like to get fitted for a pair of those jeans. You know, that's not what I wanted. I wanted yeah. something that was, <laughs> you know, people know Fred McMurray didn't think of that. I wanted what he really thought. So I started writing those shows um, in collaboration with various others. And, uh, you know, the Kennedy Center Honors, basically. And then when I did miniseries, um, I, I just by then was a writer. And then one night I was having dinner with Sidney Poitier and his wife. I, on Melrose Boulevard and my wife. And I asked Cindy, what are you up to? And he said, it's um, been 40 years since Raisin in the Sun on Broadway. He said, I, I want to go back to Broadway. And I don't know where it came from. I said to Cindy, how about I write a play about Thurgood Marshall? And so that was the, the beginning of me becoming a playwright. Uh, Sydney. And we had worked together. I did write and direct a miniseries called Separate But Equal, in which Sidney starred as Thurgood Marshall. Um, so that's sort of where that idea came from. But then you just go do it. So, uh. and, and it ended up, Sidney was, as it turned out, not able to do it. And Lawrence Fishburne did it on Broadway, yes. And I believe, didn't they make, uh, they filmed a version of it. It's on HBO Max. Yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. People can check it out at home. And he was nominated for a Tony for that. You do keep track of things, yes. Something else I'd love to cover. Well, I first of all, I do want to know about your dad, I guess. Like, 
Mm. What was it like being raised by a prolific director? And it sounds like you have a good relationship with your dad. What What was your dad like? Oh, he was wonderful. As, as Kate Hepburn, I believe, said in that book, he had the this, this wonderful sense of humor, this quiet sense of humor. He grew up with his parents in the theater. His father was an actor manager with, and his wife was in the company. His father played 500 roles on the stage. And dad would hear, he talked once about sitting under the stage when he was eight years old. And his favorite time was when his father played Sidney Carton in A Tale of Two Cities. And he described sitting under the stage and Sidney Carton climbing the steps to the guillotine and saying, it's a far, far better thing I do than I've ever done before and, and that speech. And then the guillotine coming down and he described the silence of the audience and then all hands coming together. And you realize that as a child, if he had this music of the theater in his head and he had a kind of taste and then he, as a young cameraman, he was, he was the cameraman for Laurel and Hardy and spent four or five years just working on those comedies. And he, as Hepburn said, he totally understood comedy. So, you know, he was gifted and he was um, just a gentle, a wonderful father. He left and went to war for three years. Then they didn't go on assignments, you know, for a tour. You, you went, to, you know, so he was gone for three years. We had the most wonderful collection of letters. He kept all the letters my mother and I wrote to him and we kept his and they're all in the Academy Library, um, Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Uh, yeah, so he was just, uh, and he, he, you know, I talked about him saying respecting the audience. He, he respected me in a way. By example, he led, and um, he would insinuate ideas. So I was just very fortunate, and and working together and sitting with him, and he he edited in a theater, not with a moviola. And he had a theater built with a screen on the fourth wall, and by his chair, in the theater part, he had on the right side of his chair a control for the right projector back in the booth, and on the left chair, and he would use the theater like a moviola. He, he would run, run the scene because he, he didn't think that that five-inch screen on the moviola, he would see things in Elizabeth Taylor's eyes or Montgomery Cliff's eyes on that big screen and have a feeling of how a film was going to work with the audience. But I would sit with him for days and weeks and months on end and just see that process of how you choose this and choose that. Your father grew up with a big theater influence and being in the theater and watching performances. Did you experience that? Because you were growing up more on film sets, I suppose. Did you get to craft a love of the theater at all and see a lot no, of the, theater growing up? Yeah, an occasional trip downtown to see, you know, a play. And then, you know, going to New York as I got older, but um, not the way he did. And just so curious, do you have any great, like, on-set golden age stories from Shane or Giant or from A Place in the Sun that you would want to share with us here? Well, I could say that I'd rather have you read them in the book. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm just thinking, you know, I write about the, um, when he said he, he, he was interested in what kind of a film A Place in the Sun was going to be in 25 years. This is the 70th anniversary of Place in the Sun. And a new version, I mean, a new edition has just come out on Blu-ray. And 
Mike Nichols, who we lost this year, wonderful man and wonderful director and a great friend. Um, in, in the book, Mike Nichols, uh, Mark Harris's book that just came out, uh, people ask him, well, you, you did, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? And you really hardly ever been on a film set. How did you, how in the world did you manage that? And I think he won the Oscar for it in his first picture. And he said, uh, I've watched A Place in the Sun a hundred times. He said, everything you need to know in terms of making a film is in A Place in the Sun. In Shane, there's a the famous scene where Stonewall Tory, the little southerner, who's kind of loud, swaggering, one of the homesteaders, um, whom the cattle people are trying to run off their claims, confronts Jack Palance playing this amazing Slick Wilson, this gunman who comes in, you know, and I watched that scene being shot. And I think it was Sam Peckinpah that said, you know, up until that scene, he said, they, they'd be shooting and they, they'd shoot the Indians and they'd fall off their horses and they'd get back on their horses and shoot some more. And he said, uh, after that, that, cha that scene changed, you know, because we really learned what one gunshot could do. And, you know, just, I describe how that scene was filmed and how, and he wetted this little street of this little town up onto the Teton Mountains. And so it was really slushy and they came in and we were blessed with a cloudy day and the clouds passed over the scene. But in digging a pit under the mud and put a mattress there and little Elisha Cook Jr., Stonewall Tory, put a harness under him and, uh, and under his clothing with a wire that went back and had three stage hands with the, you know, and when Jack Pellant shot him, instead of him clutching and falling forward, you know, he flopped back into that mud and, you know, just how carefully crafted a scene like that, you know, and my father, who, as you mentioned, had been to Dachau, and he said, in this film, a single gunshot for us is the Holocaust. That's the moment when everything becomes real, when the danger becomes real. Exactly, yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, this is just a personal note. I mean, I'm, I'm Jewish, and my family that came to America survived, but my family that remained in Austria-Hungary were murdered in concentration camps. So, you know, for me, what your father did was incredibly important in getting people in America to understand what was what was happening, you know? So yeah. that's just a personal note on my end. Um, do you ever recall being totally starstruck by someone as a young person? Well, when I was 17, and, and I was at Occidental College, and this was after that, before when I told you about doing the breakdown of Dreischer's and American Tragedy, I went over to the studio to watch dad filming. And he was filming a scene with uh, Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor. And when they broke for lunch, Elizabeth might have had said hello to came over and said, would you like to go to lunch? So I walked by the sound stages and into the uh, commissary and uh, uh, Elizabeth was guided to her table and I followed in her wake and 
Uh, I had, as, as it turned out, hamburgers and chocolate milkshake with uh, Elizabeth, who, uh, you know, the most beautiful woman in the world. Yes. Um, so uh, I would say that that was uh, a pretty good moment. Um, so having such an incredible life, meeting so many incredible people and doing such wonderful work, do you have any just like pearls of wisdom or anything that you want to share, any life advice that you would like to give to our viewers at home? I don't have much advice for, for nuclear scientists, but people who might be pursuing a, a career in storytelling and film, the most valuable ideas that have worked for me are having respect for the audience. Don't underestimate them. I, I would kind of leave it at that. Is there a film of your father's that is your favorite? It's very hard, you know, to choose between A Place in the Sun, Shane and Giant, or his, the film of his that I first loved for so many years, Gunga Din. Talk about humor. You know, that has such sophisticated, wonderful humor. And The Diary of Anne Frank. It's just, I, I really can't, they all have such virtues. And Giant is so remarkable in that it is about today. Nobody was making film, or, or hardly anyone, certainly with a feminist in the central role as the Elizabeth Taylor, Leslie Linton, or about uh, the problems of race, and in, in this case, Hispanic. So th that the film becomes more resonant with passing years. Again, to think back to him saying, I wonder what kind of a film this is going to be in such years. Here's one that uh, the themes are as vital today as they were in 1956. It's a film that truly holds up. And I also am wondering now if it's because your father clearly respected women. That's written by Edna Ferber. Like, I can't help but wonder if, if it's because your dad didn't discount women. Right. Well, and if you go through his films, you, uh, The More the Merrier, the Talk of the Town, Penny Serenade, Irene Dunn, I Remember Mama, the strong Swedish woman. Um, he he was very much, uh, uh, I don't think ahead of his time. He just had great regard for women and their their potential. I think for my money, I, my top favorites of your father's, Giant is exceptional. I love Giant. And the more the merrier always, oh. always makes me laugh. I love it every time I watch it. So for me, I mean, I love so many of your father's films, but <laughs> I love those in particular, really, they really stick with me. They're great. Um, okay, so I have this book, it came out in the 90s. It's called All About Me. Um, yeah. And it just has little fun questions. So these are some of the yes or no questions that they have in this book. Do you keep a diary? I keep notes. You keep notes. Not religiously, but over the years, I've, I've had things that I've written about that prove useful in writing the book, but I do not keep a daily diary. Do you wait until the last minute to fill your car with gas? I, I do, yes. That little nice little red light, you know, and I even, <laughs> and, I, and I calculate, I said, well, I only have to go to the, to the, to uh, Sweet Greens to get a salad. And I think I can get there and back and still get to the, yes, I don't like to waste time getting gas. Same. I do the same. I'm doing it right now, if we're being honest. Um, do you sketch while you're on the phone? No. That's a very 90s question. Oh, have you ever been to your ancestor's homeland? Well, I guess I've got ancestors in 
Ireland and Scotland, but uh, yes. Do you avoid paying full price? Yeah, now and then. Yeah, I'm, I, not religiously. It's a good treat when you don't have to pay full price. I will say that. No, nope, we're not going to ask that one. Oh. <laughs> there was one that said, do you pick your nose? You don't have to answer that. Um, do you replace the toilet paper roll immediately? The world is dying to know. Yeah, I don't think much about that. I don't oh, know. I do. I do it immediately. Maybe that's why I was like, yes, I understand this question. Do you have a secret that you've never shared with anybody else? No. Really? No. Oh, that's really that's really interesting. I feel like I do, but you know, it's all silly oh, stuff. I guess it's, I do. I, yeah. Sure. Okay, we'll end on this one instead. Do you have a color that you like to wear? Well, actually, I like pink. Let's just. Pink. I'm not wearing pink for you today, but. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wearing pink for you. It works out. Yeah. It was very kind of you to do this interview. I am. I'm so honored that. I was able to speak with you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, audience at home, I do want to remind you, please get this book. It's coming out May of 2022. It's called My Place in the Sun. You can pre-order now, um, but definitely buy it when it comes out. I know that I will. But yeah, thank you so much for being here. Do you have anything else you want to add before we head out? No, Sarah, it's just really been a pleasure. And um, I'm glad that you found interesting some of these stories from long ago, but um, because it's another... Um, thing that's governed my life is I'm very much interested in today and not inclined to nostalgia. However, I've written this book, which addresses the past, but I like to think it brings it into the world we live in. Um, but I've really enjoyed talking with you. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time, everybody at home on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was the legendary George Stevens Jr., who was so generous to come on our show, and whose brand new book, My Place in the Sun, is coming out May 17th, 2022, and is available for pre-order now wherever you buy your books. They will also be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening. <laughs>